Good morning, afternoon. It's 12.04. Good afternoon. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 16. We've been, we've been working through the book of Romans for 14 months, and we've arrived at the last three verses. And so uh, 25, 26, 27 of Romans chapter 16, that's where we're going to be this morning. And if you've got a hard copy in front of you, then uh, open up to Romans 16, but also put, put your finger in, or if you've got like a little ribbon or something, put it in Romans chapter 1, because we're going to do some flipping back and forth. As you get situated, uh, I've, I've been asking this question in each service. Uh, raise your hand if you're like a you're a person who sets goals. You're just kind of by nature you're a goal setter. I don't know why, but in every service, it's like the most timid hand raises. Like you don't want to admit you're a goal setter because what will all the non goal setters think? Um, I'm I'm a goal setter, and. Now my goal is to make everybody a goal setter. No, I'm kidding. Um, although that's the way my brain works. Um, we're at that time of the year. Uh, we're six or seven weeks into 2019, and we're at, we've reached the point where if you are someone who kind of naturally just sets goals in their life, or if you're not, but you made some New Year's resolutions, we're to the point in the year where like the rubber starts to meet the road, and you were going to wake up earlier and you weren't going to eat sugar and you were going to go to the gym and donuts look good again. You found the snooze button and it's cold and icy and so we're not going to the gym anymore. That, that's what happens around this time. But up until now, the good thing about goals is that they, they direct our action. We've got something in mind that we want to accomplish, something that we're going to do. We set a goal and that we direct our action in that way. Um, what we're going to see this morning in Romans uh, 16, 25, 26, 27, as we kind of land the plane here, is God had some very specific goals with the gospel, the sending of Jesus Christ into the world, his life, his death, his resurrection. There are some very, very specific things that God was trying to do that he's displaying in that act. And as we wrap up Romans here, I want us to see those. Uh, I want to be careful. I want to tread carefully with that. But I, I do believe that there's, in Scripture, not only in Romans, but all throughout the Bible, that there is laid out for us very clear reasons for Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And it maybe isn't going to start with the exact spot that, that you maybe assume it will. Um, and that's Okay. I also believe, though, that in terms of goals directing our action, that if we're going to live gospel-centered lives, which is what we've been talking about in Romans, and we're going to rightly live in relationship with the Lord, then our view of the gospel and our goals in life need to align with God's view of the gospel and God's goals in sending Jesus Christ to the earth. And so, this framework I'm going to lay out is going to guide us for the next two weeks. This morning, as we look at this doxology, that just means this praise that Paul offers at the end of Romans 16. But then also next week, as we kind of tie together this whole series and all the little mini series kind of breakouts that we've been doing. If you came this morning and you were kind of hoping for like, I don't know, like some self-help tips from the talking head up front, I'm going to disappoint you this morning because I don't, I'm not going to give any of those. Um, I'm not even going to really give any application points this morning. Instead, we're just going to take one long, 
hard look at the gospel this morning, and that's it. And I don't know if first service was still like frozen, um, still like half zombie-like from all of the snowed-in days that we've had recently, um, but they weren't quite as excited about it as I was or a second service ended up. Maybe it was my fault. But part of what I hope happens this morning is that the, just the beauty and the glory of the gospel would like warm our hearts and minds and bodies, that the beauty and the truth and the glory of the gospel would nourish our souls. My hope this morning is that we're refreshed in our commitment to proclaiming the gospel, but also to our commitment as followers of Jesus that all we ever need, any day, any minute, is only the gospel and always the gospel. My hope this morning is that those who haven't seen and received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, that you'd see the truth of the gospel this morning and that you would see it in all of its irresistible goodness and all of its irresistible grace. My hope is that as we stare deeply into the truth of the gospel, that our souls would be lit ablaze once again with a passion to stand upon and to stand for nothing other than the gospel. Abraham Lincoln once said, be sure to put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. We're going to get ourselves to the foot of the cross this morning. My hope is that we're drawn in so deeply that we commit afresh to stand firm in the shadow of the cross and to never move. So this is the framework I want to lay out, that the goals of the gospel are glory, worship, and salvation. Romans has laid that out for us. Paul's going to pull it all together in this doxology here at the end of his letter, and it's one sentence. If you look down at your English translation, you might have a period somewhere in there, and I'm not counting the amen at the end as its own sentence, but starting in verse 25 and working all the way to the end of verse 27 minus the word amen is one Greek sentence. It's complex. It has a lot of different clauses. If you look down at it, your English translation might put a period somewhere. It's to try to help us make sense of everything that Paul is saying. If you've got one sentence, then you're going to see a lot of commas. You might see some hyphens that set some things off at different places. A whole lot of but and according to is this, all these clauses come together and try to fit in one sentence that is essentially a restatement of where Paul started in Romans. When I was taking college comp uh, class in high school, I, it was beat into our minds that if you're going to write a good paper or a good essay on something, then you make a clear thesis at the beginning, you lay out everything in the middle, and then you restate that thesis at the end. Paul's going to do that in a nice, tidy fashion for us here in Romans 16, 25, 26, 27. So let's read it together, and then we're going to flip back to Romans chapter 1. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... And the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Flip back to Romans chapter 1. The first week in our Romans series, early January 2018, we started with verses 1 through 7. We then did nine through 15, or 8 through 15. 
Then we took verses 16 and 17 by themselves because that is Paul's thesis statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is Paul laying out everything, kind of displaying, showing his cards for everything he's going to write that comes after it. He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's available for everybody. It makes us righteous by faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There are some bookends here in Romans. Paul makes four similar points in Romans 16, 25, 26, and 27, as he does in Romans 1, 16, and 17. Let me just lay them out for us quickly. There's a statement about the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. That's Romans 1, 16. When you get to the end in Romans 16, 25, Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen, your translation might say, establish you according to my gospel. That word for strengthen in Greek, it means to prop up. You can literally think of a person who's using like uh, a walking stick or a cane or something, that it is that thing that helps them stand. It props them up. It's the power of God to establish you, to strengthen you, to prop you up. And then there's a statement about the primacy of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of, it's the gospel that is the power of salvation for those who believe. When Paul gets to the end, he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. And then he gives a list of clauses that describe that gospel. It's the proclamation about Jesus Christ. It's according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages. It's now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. It's according to the command of the eternal God. The primacy of the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel that is the power of God that can establish you or prop you up or strengthen you in order to stand. And only the gospel that can do that. There's also a statement here about the necessity of faith. It's in both places. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God, salvation, but it's got to be received by faith. When you get to the end of Romans in chapter 16, he says, it's the power of God to strengthen you according to the gospel with all those clauses about what the gospel is to advance the obedience of faith. You've got to receive that. It's not just blanket for everybody. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that doesn't mean that every single human being that's ever lived is going to be saved. It means that salvation is available for every single human being that has ever lived, but it's got to be received by faith. And then fourth, there's this urgency for the nations, urgency to the nations. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, also to the Greek. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. When you get to the end of the book of Romans, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. It's a message available for everybody. That's why Paul's writing. There's his thesis statement. Stated in Romans 1, 16 and 17, restated in this praise that he offers at the end of his letter. Paul's writing to proclaim the power of God as seen in the glory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is revealed, are received through faith, and is for all the nations of the earth. There's the reason for Romans. 
And everything that falls in between is laying out the necessity of the gospel, how it was achieved in the life of Jesus Christ, what that means for us, how it empowers us, how that means we should live. That's what Romans is. It's just an unbelievable piece of writing. But let's plumb a little bit deeper. Because I said that the goals of the gospel are glory and worship and salvation. The death of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate display of God's glory. Is anybody using an NLT version, a New Living Translation? Yes? Will you you read, just start in verse 25, nice and loud for everybody? That's good. (laughs) Now all glory to God. It's like I said, this is a complex Greek sentence. There are all sorts of clauses scattered throughout it. The thrust of the sentence in my CSB comes at the very end. That's the way it comes in the Greek sentence. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to the gospel, that's the proclamation of Jesus. It's a revelation of a mystery that was kept silent for a long time. It's been revealed through the prophetic scriptures. It's according to the eternal command of God. To him be all the wisdom. And then Paul says, glory to him. In English, I don't know, we forget stuff. So the NLT does the helpful thing of moving that to the beginning. Now, all glory to him who's able to strengthen you according to the gospel, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, a mystery revealed that was kept silent for long ages. Glory. Goal number one in the gospel no matter where your English translation puts it. Paul ends this letter with an emphasis on glory, specifically all glory being to God because of the gospel. That's the praise being offered in the doxology at the end of Romans. Remember, he's restating and summarizing here to close his letter. Flip back with me again to Romans chapter one if you've got easy access to that. But this time go to verse 18. After laying out for us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There's why I'm writing. Paul jumps to the beginning of that, uh, of where you would have to go to logically show that, and that's with sin. And he starts in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, what did they not do? Glorify at the root of our sin issue, is putting glory in the wrong place. At the very heart of your sin nature is not behaviors that you do that are incorrect. It's a giving of glory and ascribing of glory to the wrong place. Why is God's wrath revealed? Verse 18. Well, verse 21. Because we knew God, humanity, but we didn't glorify him as God. We didn't ascribe to him the praise and the glory that is due to him and to him alone. Rather than rejoicing in the supreme glory of God, we've made this sort of inglorious exchange. That's the way we talked about it last February when we got to this passage. 
in that we've chosen to ascribe glory to created things rather than to the creator. Let me define glory really quickly and let me do it with Tim and Kathy Keller's words. They say this, what is glory? It is his infinite weight, his supreme importance. God's glory also means his inexpressible beauty and perfection. So at the foundation of our sin nature, is the reality that we're prone to swapping the inexpressible beauty of God for things that are so much lesser. That we look at the world around us and we ascribe inexpressible beauty, infinite weight, supreme importance to those things that aren't beautiful, aren't actually weighty, and have no real importance. They're just kind of shiny objects that are distracting and we give them ultimate glory. That's at the core of our sin. That's what leads us into sinful behavior, yes, but it starts with this swapping of glories. We're bent toward ascribing supreme importance to things other than the supreme being of the universe, other than to God, and that problem needs solving. It isn't a problem with the eternally holy God. It isn't a problem in the created world necessarily. It's a problem in the human heart. And that human heart problem needs a solution. And that solution is Jesus. Romans 1, 2, and 3, up to verse 20, lay out for us the problem of sin. Romans 3, 21 tells us that in order to solve that sin problem, the swapping of glories, Jesus was sent. And in the sending of Jesus, we see the ultimate expression of God's glory. Anything that God is, he is infinitely. Let me say that again. Anything that God is, he is infinitely. And that's to his glory. That means God is not kind of holy. He's infinitely holy. That means God is not sort of just. He's infinitely just. That means God is not kind of annoyed by sin. No, he is infinitely wrathful toward sin. But it also means that God is not kind of loving. He's infinitely loving. He's not somewhat gracious. He's infinitely gracious. He's not a little bit merciful. He's infinitely merciful. He's not kind of forgiving. He is infinitely forgiving. He is not sort of righteous. He is infinitely righteous. He is not kind of wise. He is infinitely wise. He is not a little bit glorious. He's infinitely glorious. Anything God is, he is infinitely. And praise the Lord that that's the case. Because when you stand before God in your final moment of judgment, you want a God who in Jesus Christ was infinitely wrathful, infinitely just, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful. You don't want a God that was half of those things. Because if that's the case, you will stand before him and you will have no hope. Anything God is, he is infinitely. And anything that God is infinitely, he displays perfectly. And that's to his glory. And he has done it in Jesus Christ at Calvary on the cross, where holiness was perfectly revealed, wrath was perfectly poured out, justice was perfectly satisfied, love was perfectly shown, grace perfectly extended, mercy perfectly given, forgiveness perfectly granted, righteousness perfectly availed, wisdom perfectly exercised, glory perfectly revealed. That's what we have in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
the ultimate display of God's glory. If you're kind of flipping with me in Romans, flip forward a couple pages to chapter five. We've got this sin problem, Romans 3.21. It's been solved in the sending of Jesus. Romans chapter four, faith is the way we receive that. It's always been the case, Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the what? The glory. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you rejoice in the hope of the fullness of the glory that was displayed in his death on the cross. That is your hope, nothing else. The display of that glory on the cross is what you cast all of your hope upon. And when you stand before the Lord in your moment of judgment, your hope will become reality. The death of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate display of God's glory. And so he begins the closing of his letter in Romans 16, 25 by saying, now all glory. Goal number one of the gospel. Goal number two, worship. Because seeing and understanding the glory of God reorders our worship. Jump back to Romans chapter one with me. We finished in verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Uh, Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resulting mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what did they do? worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So in the sending of Jesus, this ultimate display of God's glory, our worship can be reordered. Romans 1 through 3, we have a sin issue that's rooted in having swapped glory for created things rather than the glory of the Lord. Romans 3 21 through the end of verse 5, God has sent Jesus to perfectly display his glory and to correct our sin problem. Romans 6, 7, and 8, the Holy Spirit is given to those who receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's able to make us stand. The grace of God and the sending of the Holy Spirit is what props us up. It's what helps us stand in the face of temptation. It's what helps us stand in the midst of a broken world. It's what helps us stand boldly and courageously in our faith in the gospel. Romans 9, 10, and 11, that there's this consistency of that glory that's played itself out over all of time for all people across all the different ages. And then that leads you to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And you see the display of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. It reorders your worship. Here in Romans 1, 18 down to 32, Paul says that as we've swapped glories, we've given our bodies over to worshiping lesser things. And Paul talks about our minds, our bodies, our mouths, our eyes, our hearts. You get to Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, in view of God's mercy, in view of the glory of God displayed in the work of Christ, 
offer your body to Him. When we get our glory in the right spot, our worship naturally follows. What does Paul say back here in Romans 16? Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, proclamation about Jesus, revelation of a mystery kept silent for ages, revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience. Worship gets reordered. I took a chunk out of the middle of the quote about glory from Tim and Kathy Keller. I want to put that chunk in and read this again. What is God's glory? It is his infinite weight, his supreme importance. To glorify God is to obey him unconditionally. To ever say, I'll obey if, is to give something else more importance or glory than God. God's glory also means his inexpressible beauty and perfection. It does not glorify him then if we only ever obey God simply out of duty. We must give him not only our will, but our heart as we enjoy and adore him and as we find him infinitely attractive. Seeing and understanding the glory of God reorders our worship. It makes us run to the altar and willfully, joyfully, obediently launch our bodies, our lives up there onto the Romans 12, 1 and 2 altar and say, God, you can have all of it. I've seen your glory. I've seen the infinite nature of your wrath and your justice. I've seen the infinite nature of your holiness and your righteousness, but also the infinite nature of your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And I've seen it in the person of Jesus Christ and I will worship nothing else. I will give glory nowhere else. I'm giving you all that I am. Mind, heart, mouth, body, hands, everything, God, you can have all of it. Seeing the glory is supposed to reorder our worship. And so what does that actually look like? Well, Romans 12 through 15, Paul stepped that out for us. You use your gifts to serve the body of Christ. You love one another within the body of Christ. You live in harmony with one another. Paul says in Romans 12 that, Part of what that is to worship the Lord is to be submissive to the government because we understand that God's instituted it for our good, no matter who's in charge or where we might be or what that government structure is. He says that we're to be deferential to one another on non-essential matters, that we seek to please others rather than ourselves, and that we do all of that not in order to be saved, but because we've seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's reordered the way we think and the things that we want to do. It's rearranged our worship. Glory, worship, salvation. Paul says that all glory is to be to God because he is advancing the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. People are being saved. There is no salvation without reordered worship. And this is where I want to tread carefully, but I believe it to be absolutely true. I believe it to be absolutely true when you look at Romans. I believe it to be absolutely true if you take the entirety of the biblical narrative and text from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and that is that the primary reason for the sending of Jesus Christ was the display of God's glory. Our salvation is absolutely a part of that. He definitely, without any doubt, wants to spend eternity with those that he created as they lovingly worship him. But you cannot have the salvation without the display of glory. You cannot get one without the other. 
The proclamation of God's glory among all his creation was the primary reason for the sending of Jesus. Now, our salvation, the reconciling of sinful humanity to holy God was absolutely a part of that. Run back with me to the Garden of Eden. You don't have to flip there. We'll just think our way through it. God creates. He doesn't have to create. He's complete and whole and perfect in and of himself. He creates as this physical expression of his perfect unrivaled glory. He makes Adam and Eve in his image and he places them in the garden. And what are they supposed to do there? Fill the earth and subdue it. They're supposed to fill the earth with expressions of his glory, with people who bear his image and obey him, people that worship him. But instead, what do they do? They sin. Well, what happened? They swapped glories. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided that rather than see God as supremely beautiful and perfect, that something was lacking and they just had to have that fruit. So they ate from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. And sin enters into the world. Incidentally, that isn't actually the first incidence of sin, kind of the origin of sin that the Bible describes. The origin, the spiritual origin, has its root at the fall of Lucifer, Satan. He has a self-generated pride that wants some of God's glory for himself. So he and all of those with him are kicked out of heaven. You don't get to take from God's glory and go unpunished. The same is true for Adam and Eve. They give glory to something other than God and thus they face punishment. They have to leave the garden. They're subject to death. And what's God been doing ever since then? He's been proclaiming his glory in a world that's fallen. He's been drawing people into worship of himself and redeeming a people for himself. Glory, worship, and salvation. God calls Abraham and makes him a people, that's to his glory. He rescues Israel from Egypt, that's to his glory. He leads Israel into the promised land, that's to his glory. He builds Israel into a nation, that's to his glory. He exiles them because of their sin, that's to his glory. He sends Jesus into the world, that's to his glory. The goals of the gospel are glory, worship, and salvation. In Jesus his life, death, and resurrection in the gospel, we see the ultimate expression of the glory of God. And seeing that glory is to reach into the human heart and reorder our worship. It's to just reach into the very core of who we are at our broken, sinful center and totally rearrange it. That we would see the glory of who God is and we would stop swapping it to other places. We would stop giving it to lesser things. And instead, we would ascribe all glory to God and that would order our worship into its correct place and salvation would be secured because the grace of God received by faith is big enough to save any person no matter how sinful and broken you might be. Oh my gosh, that is the beauty of the gospel. It's unbelievable. Yes, are you awake? Yes. Amen, yes. An infinitely holy, infinitely wrathful, infinitely just, infinitely righteous, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful, infinitely forgiving God would send Jesus Christ into the world to display that he is infinitely glorious and we would be saved because of it. It's unbelievable. There's the gospel. And when we Get those out of order. If we make kind of me and my personal salvation the ultimate reason that Jesus Christ was sent into this earth, we, ah, we go wrong. 
when we keep glory at the forefront, worship there with it, and salvation alongside of it, and we see the three of those working together, then we want to live a gospel-centered life. Then we would want to be humbly unified with all these crazy, weird people that also follow Jesus. Then we would be willing to engage in the process of sanctification, even though it hurts and it's painful at times, while our rough, sinful edges are chiseled into something smoother that looks like Jesus. Then we would want to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth and invest the gospel into the people around us that they might do the same. If we make just salvation and me the end point of the gospel, then we look at God and we say, you got me. What more could you possibly want? That was your goal and you've got it. So I don't need to share it with anybody else because you already got me and I was the high focal point. I don't need to disciple anybody else because I don't know if they were the end point. I was the end point. Then we don't need to pursue holiness because, well, God's got me already and I'm the like, chief aim of him. And so why would I need to obey? We've got to have the same goals. We've got to have the same purpose that God had in sending Jesus into the world. And that means we live for glory. We live to worship. And salvation is a glorious, beautiful thing that comes with it. And we'll spend eternity glorying and worshiping in the light of the Lord. Revelation says that new heaven and new earth won't have a sun. There won't be any need for light. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is going to radiate and light up everything. In our broken world right now, the darkness is pierced by the glory of the Lord shown in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what makes the darkness flee. And if we don't figure out how to live for glory here, I don't think we'll ultimately be satisfied living in unrivaled glory there. The goals of the gospel, glory, worship, and salvation. So Romans ends by reminding us that all glory be to God as he advances the obedience, the worship of faith, salvation among all the nations. That's where we're going to pick up next week as we wrap up our series. But right now, I think it makes sense to sing a little bit as we close, yeah? And so we're going to go back to In Christ Alone, which we sang after communion. We're going to start in the third verse. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Glory, worship, salvation. Let's sing together.